Tim Keller, pastor for Redeemer Church in New York City, says that he loves Ephesians because it's like a miniature Romans. You can preach through Ephesians without having to spend five years. Uh, so it's a miniature Romans. And uh, so I'm excited. I'm excited personally because I love this. We were talking this morning in our community group about how many Bible verses that we've memorized that come from the book of Ephesians. There's just so much there that we need as part of our spiritual arsenal to memorize. Uh, I'm also excited because it's the first time I've preached through this. And so I'm excited because when you, when you study to preach, you study to get a real, uh, much different sense of what is going on. And so I'm looking forward to this personally. I'm looking forward to it congregationally because I think there's really a lot for us to learn about our identity as a church. John MacArthur, who is a uh, preaching uh, mentor of mine, not by because I know him, but because I have uh, studied him, his works, and I have uh, listened to his sermons, but he says that the book of Ephesians, when he preached it, and he started his ministry in 1969 at Grace Community Church in California, that the foundational principles that made Grace Community Church and the ministries of that church, what they are, are found in the book of Ephesians. Now, I don't have any aspiration or any delusion that one city church is going to be like Grace Community Church, but the principles are still there. They're still true for who God is calling us to be here in Lancaster City. I'm also enthusiastic about this book individually, not just congregationally as we gather together, but individually for each of us because there are so many topics within this book that we're going to be able to focus on over the next, I don't know how long we'll be here, but we're going to be here for a while. And I think everyone's going to have something to learn. Now, some Christians live in the world of doctrine. They just love, you start talking doctrine. And man, they just, whoo, they're ready to go. I'm looking at a couple of them in their eye. They just like talking doctrine. You may be married to one of those people. And they start talking doctrine, and you're like, uh. Other Christians, they just want to say, make it really practical. Let, it, let me know what I need to do. Well, Ephesians has both. Ephesians has both. Uh, and so it is going to be, I think, a great study for us. Doctrine, practical Christian living, melded together perfectly in six chapters. But tonight my goal is to introduce you to this book. We're going to cover two verses. But I'm going to give you a little bit of background, background setting, so that our study will make uh, be more enlightening, I hope. Um, now I want to set the table for the study that we're going to be getting into in the months to come. Uh, and we're going to be looking at this book from different heights, right? So uh, tonight we'll just be on a few verses, but we're going to we're going to look at this book from you know a mile high. We're going to look down and we're going to look at it at some level as a whole. But then we're going to drop down a little bit closer in, and we're going to look at some of the uh, some of the themes and the nuances. Uh, and, and how they uh, and how they drive us, and but sometimes we're going to get down in here, and we're going to be really hashing out and chopping it up so that we can see. Because I think God has 
sure, but we don't want to miss gazing at the wonder of the trees when the trees are wonderful. So let's talk a little bit about the structure of this book. Important for us to understand how this letter was put together for our Christian life. Many Christians have an experience where they've been involved in churches, and they go week in and week out, and they have this sense at the end of it all, at the end of a particular Sunday, or if you've been going to a church for a while, and you just feel like, man, this time is here, there's so much to do, my life is a wreck, I'm not keeping up with all of the expectation, I can't, I'm not living the way I should, so i got to either fake it or stay away. Never done anything like that? You ever had an experience in your own heart like that? Where you just don't meet up to the lofty standards and the duties of the Christian faith? You feel weighed down? Alistair Begg, pastor in Cleveland, Ohio, says that knowing the structure helps us come back to that weightiness of feeling like a Christian failure. And you understand that chapters 1 through 3 of the uh, letter of the Ephesians, is all about what God has done for us in Christ. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about what God has done for you in Christ. And it's followed by chapters 4 through 6, which press us in the term walk. If you look, starting in, in chapter 4, you're going to see the term walk. And how do we live or walk it out? How do we live relying upon all that God has done for us in Christ? That's important. If you divorce chapters 1 through 3 from 4 through 6, you're going to find yourself over here in 4 through 6 without any sense of joy or strength. But when you understand all that God has done for you in Christ, and then you say, now let's walk this out, never leaving one through three, you're going to find so much richness and joy in your life, wherever you find yourself circumstantially. In the first three chapters, just as a way of the structure of this, for those linguistic nerds, the verb senses are really important. In the first three chapters, the verbs are all indicatives. Let me say what that means. Indicative verbs tend to make language. means this is what is. That's an indicative. There is only one place in chapters 1 through 3 that there is a imperative. An imperative is this is what you should do. Right? Indicative, this is what is. Imperative, this is what you should do. Chapters 1 through 3, the verbs, except for one, by the way, the first person, you can email me or tell me next Sunday, the first person who tells me what that one imperative is in chapters 1 through But you get to chapter 4, and from 4 to the end, there are 38 
primary form of worship. Thirdly, you need to know about this as a backdrop to the book of Ephesians that God had powerfully, powerfully worked through the apostles' ministry in Ephesus. He had spent three years ministering there, night and day, it tells us in Acts chapter 20, that he would meet with people and dialogue with them and discuss them and reason with them about the kingdom of God for three years. He would do it in different settings. He started in the Jewish synagogue for the first three months until the heart of their heart. He said, forget this, I'm going to the hall of Tyrannus. And he would reason with them uh, about the things of the kingdom of God. Paul says that he spoke to people publicly as well as house to house. So Paul, for three years, was just going after uh, the people of Ephesus with the gospel. So much so that in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, when he called the Ephesian elders together, and it would be the very last time that they saw Paul, he said to them, I have not uh, shrunk back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Earlier in the chapter, he says that I have taught you everything that is profitable. In Acts chapter 19, it says that during Paul's time there, all of Asia heard the word of God. I mean, he had a profound ministry in the city. So you think, wow, well, it must have been great. He must have been like a hero. He had his best life now. That's what they believed. And that was his logic 
the tolerance of this in this multicultural pluralistic society worked in when they saw that Jesus Christ calls for and will not share devotion with anyone else. Jesus Christ will not share his glory with anyone else. Especially something that's not real. I shouldn't even say especially. Including that which is not real. Now, as you look through Acts chapter 19 and chapter 20, what you will notice is not only the message of the gospel that he was nine days sharing with people, but also the Holy Spirit came with such powerful effect upon the people of Ephesus because the magic arts were practiced there that it literally, the combination of gospel and the Holy Spirit's uh, powerful effect broke the back of Artemis worship in that city and it caused an uproar. So much of the effect of the Holy Spirit you see that they, those who turned to Christ brought all their magical, their books of uh, magic and uh, and burned them and said the value of just that was worth 50,000 pieces of gold. That's a lot of money. The fourth thing I want you to see is backdrop to this book. We're still in the introduction, by the way. Is that Ephesians was written while Paul was in prison. This is one of what are called Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are the prison epistles that were written by the Apostle Paul while he was in jail in Rome. We read about that, uh, that uh, incarceration in Acts chapter 28. You can read about it there. Uh, so the reason that's important is because when you emphasize, Paul wanted to emphasize all that God has done for us in Christ so that we will live and walk in a way relying upon all that God has done for us in Christ because we are in a spiritual battle. And that spiritual battle, which is laid out in chapter 6 of Ephesians, and how we do that battle, works itself out in the nuances of how you and I are called to suffer for the sake of Christ. Paul knew that Christians would suffer. He suffered. Nobody voluntarily goes to prison for no good reason. Paul remained there for two years, it says in Acts chapter 28, receiving all who would come to him because he refused to not preach 
course, like everything biblically, uh, critical, uh, critical theory has questioned whether it was actually Paul. But if you go back to church history, from the, the church fathers from the fourth century to the third century to the were quoting one another to the second century to the first century, all said Paul wrote it. But somehow, in the 1800s, it was figured out that Paul didn't write it. You know what? Paul wrote this thing. Paul wrote this. Who is Paul? Paul, otherwise in other places known as Saul of Tarsus, he was raised in a serious Jewish home. He became a Pharisee, and he studied under the great teacher Gamaliel, which was a high honor. He was super serious about his Judaism. He was an early leader among the Pharisees, so much so that when this sect of Judaism, which was called the Way, which we know as the church, who was called the Way back then, when this sect of early Judaism uh, began to rise and exercise influence in Jerusalem, Paul was the leader of the persecution of the Way, slash the church. He was the one who stood by giving his approval in Acts chapter 7 for the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, at least the first one that is recorded in the scripture. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Paul, or Saul at this point, he was called. Uh, Saul is just a Jewish name. His Greek, the Greekified name was Paulus. It was Saulus in Hebrew. But so that's why the, the, the discrepancy there. But in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Saul is described as breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This is who he is. Intense guy, hates the way, go on after him. All of that changed as he traveled on a 200 mile journey. 200 miles. They didn't have cars, probably didn't even have chariots. He's either walking or riding, and he is breathing threats against. And he is uh, the, uh, the, the believers in the Lord. And he is on his way 200 miles from Jerusalem to a town called Damascus where he is going to, he has heard that there are followers of this. He's going to arrest them. He's going to put them in chains and he's going to bring them back to Jerusalem. It says for a trial, I, I think he hoped that they would be murdered, putting them into this. Because he saw the effect that it was having upon temple Judaism. People were uh, doing exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 4, remember? The woman's marriage woman? He, it says, the Jews, she said, the Jews said you worship in Jerusalem. We say on this mountain, and Jesus said, my friend, there is coming a day when neither on that place or this place are people going to work. God is spirit, and he's seeking people who will worship him in spirit and truth. Paul knew that Christianity, the way, was a direct affront to temple Judaism that he has staked his entire relationship with God upon, and he was going to snuff it out. So much so, he was going to travel 200 miles. But on that journey, and we don't know where it happened, Jesus Christ met him in a bolt of light and a vision tailored only to him. The way it's recorded in Acts chapter 22 and 26, you can't quite, because sometimes other people hear the word sometimes, uh, people don't hear the word. We don't know who heard what, but Paul saw it, and Paul heard everything Jesus said to him, and he repented that day in the house of men Ananias. You can read about Paul's testimony, and I hope you will, in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22. He writes 
Jesus Christ laid hold 
his life first. But when Paul realized that it was the resurrected Messiah calling him to his apostleship, he did not shy away. And this had a profound effect upon Paul. So much so that it led to Paul's willingness to be able to suffer. So that's the author. Let's talk about the gospel identity. Look what he says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. To the saints. When you hear that word saint, what do you think of? I was raised in a particular Christian denomination that said a saint was someone who lived a particular holy kind of life and after their death, if they, enough miracles were done that could be attributed to their life or death, then they would be canonized. That's what a saint was, how I was raised. That has nothing, that, that bears no resemblance to the New Testament. In the New Testament, a saint, uh, the Greek word is actually used of living people, first of all. That's the most basic sense. It's not with the dead people who live a particular life. He's talking to actual people who are going to listen to this letter be read in their church service. They were alive. People who were alive and who believed the gospel. The Greek word for saints is the word hagios, which means holy one, someone who's set apart. It's interesting that Ethan is here because illustration, when you think of holy ones, I think of uh, in India, these holy men that go to the Ganges River and uh, in every village that I ever visited in India, um, they had like a holy uh, man, usually an older guy, typically not dressed real well, uh, oftentimes very um, unkept, uh, but this man had like an aura around him within Hinduism. Uh, well, that's not, that's not what a, a, a holy one is or a saint is in the Christian faith. In the New Testament and here in Ephesians, it says that all of us are saints. Did you know that? Did you know that you're a saint? You are a saint. Let me just, for the sake of clarity, say, if you have ever come to a point in your life where you know that you, you, have rebelled against the God who made you and owns your life, and that you have, through passive indifference or active rebellion, said no to his will for your life. And you recognize that because of your action, that God in his holiness held a weight over your head, a weight of judgment, a weight of justice that will crush you and punish you under his perfect, holy goodness. And there is nothing that you can do to escape it. And yet, if there was an end time and space 2,000 years ago, you come to see that there was a man who entered into this world. A man who had come from heaven, the Son of Man, the Son of God, and lived a life of distinction and perfect obedience to the Father, so that he, like we just celebrated in communion, could go to a cross and pay the actual penalty that I owe and you owe if we're willing to put our trust in him. And he bore the entire crushing weight of God's wrath, not for his own sins, but because he willingly took mine and yours, if you're willing to put your trust in him, and he died under the wrath of God, 
because God hates your sin. And that was the only rescue that God would accept. And on the third day, death was defeated and we came back. And if you have recognized that as your only hope for standing in the assembly of the righteous when you stand are called to stand before God on your, either on your death day or on the day that Christ returns, if you can put your trust in that alone, you are a saint. Hallelujah. You are holy. Amen. You are holy. The Bible says that God has declared you righteous and perfect in God's eyes. What a distinction from some external following of the rules, whether it be Hinduism or Catholicism or any aberration of Protestantism or anything else where it is dependent upon self-righteousness and moralism on our part, how good can you be when what we need is an alien righteousness given to us, and that's what we receive in Christ when we put our faith. We call it the great exchange. He gets our sins, we get his righteousness, he dies, we live. Why do you reject that? That's the best news ever. That's your gospel identity. You're a saint. You're in a saint. And I'm glad I've got a couple of years to preach this book because I don't have to do it all tonight. <laughs> I'm just going to move to the third point. Your gospel inheritance. Verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know, Christian, that your inheritance is that God is your Father and that Jesus Christ is your King? And do you know, Christian, that your relationship with him is one which is based entirely upon grace. Not how good you've been. Some of us, even who are raised in evangelical worlds, we still try to somehow prove that we're worthy. I say lay that down. Paul says, grace to you. Grace to you. The unmerited favor of God that comes to you through Jesus Christ. Take that. Paul's going to develop that thing in chapter 2 deeply. But this grace is the result in God's peace. God's peace in three ways. And I want to ask you if these three are characteristic of you. First, God's peace between you and God. Romans chapter 5 says, in having been justified by faith, we have the peace of God. You know that you're at peace with God through Jesus Christ having put your faith in Him. The second area of peace is that God gives us peace between people who otherwise might be enemies or at least diverse and cause conflict. In chapter 3 and 4, we learn how in Jesus Christ the dividing wall of hostility is torn down so there might be peace between people, diverse people. One church in one body and be at peace with one another. 
the peace with God, but the peace of God in our circumstances. And you know that God is the Father. Jesus is the King. And God is working all things to the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. You can look suffering and I uh, 